Mark chapter 10. We're going to read verse 13 through 31. Mark 10, 13 through 31. Today we're going to be talking about money and idolatry. Now, we've been, we've been tackling some pretty fun topics uh, on Sunday, Sundays. The last couple of weeks we've been talking about hell and temptation and marriage and divorce and today money. Now, I don't necessarily love talking about money because I, like you, when you hear that money, you're like, listen, I don't have a wealth problem, okay? I don't have a problem with having a lot of money. And a lot of us think, well, I'm fine when it comes to money. I, I want more, yeah. If you're going to talk about how to get more, then I'm all about that. But I don't really have a problem with it. Um, I spend what I get, and that's about it. And, uh, and I think what the deception behind it, and we're going to look at today, is that we all can say this. Even me, when I approach this going, what am I going to say here? Because none of us thinks we really, think we really have a problem with money. But as we will see, Jesus will put his finger on, it might be money, it also might be some form of idolatry, something that is keeping us from following Jesus. And that's the whole point that we'll be talking about today, following Jesus. So, we'll start in verse 13. Now, we talked about verse 13 last week, but I think it ties better into this text, so I'll reread it again. Verse 13. This is right after Jesus' teaching on about marriage and divorce, and he says, and they were bringing children to Jesus, that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them, like, don't, don't let the kids over here. But when Jesus saw it, he was mad, indignant, and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. Now, you have to listen to the language here. Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God belongs to children. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not inherit it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. And he was setting out on a journey and a man ran up to him, knelt before him and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, I have kept all of these from my youth. And Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, listen, children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, well, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you, Jesus, and Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. That's our text this morning. Let's pray. 
Lord, I pray that you would help us, that you would give us um, right ears to hear and hearts to understand. I pray, God, that like many of us, we probably all know the implications of this text, but help us to not just understand it this morning, but to actually apply it. And I confess to you that this teaching has been a very difficult one to apply. I pray that we would all walk in it, Lord, that you would help us to do that. And we submit our minds and our hearts to you and say together that we want to follow you. I know that there are, are most of us gathered here want to follow Jesus, and we, and we want to follow you by your terms, not our own. And, and so we submit our, our, our minds, and I submit my, my mind and my mouth to you and ask that you would anoint me now and use this time for your good and glory, Jesus. In your name, amen. Amen. So we've been in the book of Mark now for quite a while. And the first half of the book of Mark, we've, we've said, is about Jesus' character and his nature and what he's like and who he is and how he's come in and he's, he's brought healing and restoration and hope, how he's come in and he's done things like crazy things like walk on water and cast out uh, demons from, from a, a crazy naked man, um, how, he's, how he's healed the people that were lame and people with leprosy, he's touched them and they've been healed. He's done all these amazing, miraculous things. And the first half of the book of Mark is this sweeping like action story has been all about what Jesus has come to do, his nature and his character. And throughout the beginning of the book of Mark, it mentions that Jesus teaches a lot, but it doesn't mention what Jesus actually teaches. And now we are in a section right now that talks about what he teaches. It stops and goes, okay, this is, these are the things that Jesus is saying. And like when we, when we started, we, we started about hell and temptation and power and marriage and divorce, and today we're talking about money. And I think it's fairly clear what Jesus is saying here. When I read that text, I think pretty much everyone in here went like, okay, I think I know what Jesus mean, meant to say there. But the problem is we just crumble. I know my problem is I just crumble under its weight. Mark Twain once said, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts of the Bible that I do understand. I think sometimes we approach the Bible that way. It's not the parts that I don't understand that I have a problem with. It's the parts that I do understand. I know what that's saying, and I know it's virtually impossible to get there. So I feel, when we talk about things like money, I'm like, well, this is, to be honest, I've wrestled with this for a while. Like, I'm too weak. I feel too weak to follow Jesus like this. And, I, and I'm like the disciples who say at the end, then who can be saved? And Jesus says, but with God, all things are possible. I believe that God could transform our minds, even when our, 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 our hands are so like holding on to things in our, for our, our own gain, the things that we don't think we can live without. That's, it's impossible to let go. With God, all things are possible. Now, instead of trying to find loopholes in this text, because I know it's a difficult text, instead of trying to find loopholes in this text that allow us to continue in our complacency, you're like, well, Jesus didn't really say that. I think what we should do as a community is wrestle with the implications of Jesus' words here. I mean, don't let them sit for a while. Don't squirm away. Don't leave like this rich man left. Like, sit here and let it, let it just, like, take root in our own hearts and go, Jesus, deal with these parts of my life that I'm keeping from you. And I know when we're talking about money, money is one of those topics that can be more private than sex. Most people feel freer to talk about their sex life than their checkbooks. And actually, I think it's also true that people are way quicker to join their bodies than their bank accounts that just sounds absurd. Like you're out somewhere like, let's join bank accounts. Like no one does that. That's a lot, like this, it's like the furthest thing from your mind. But in our culture, 
money seems to be so private that even when we talk about it at church, I know some people are like, oh my gosh, here we go. Church talking about money. You want my money, don't you? No, I do not want your money, okay? I want, I want, I want all of us to follow Jesus, that's it. And so I want to look at this and just deal with it rightly. I want the best that we can. And since we've been talking about hell and temptation and marriage and divorce, I said, just why not go for money as well? So this is what we'll look at today. The rich man's question, the deception of money and idolatry, and the truth about discipleship. So the first part, the rich man's question. This very, very, very rich man walks up to Jesus and he approaches him. And he asks Jesus one of the probably one of the most important questions anyone could ever ask Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? But look at his approach. He, first, if you notice, he kneels down. He like bows down before Jesus, and he calls him good teacher. Now, just the word, no one really combined those two words. I mean, teacher had enough weight of its own. If you were a teacher in that time, that was enough weight of its own. You didn't have to add good to it. It's like going to your boss and saying, you know, a super boss. Like, no one does that. Or divine boss. I mean, boss carries enough weight. Everybody knows what you're talking about. You don't need to go up to your boss and go, super boss. So there is a bit here. There there's, might be a bit of flattery going on here. Like, this young, rich man knows how to get what he wants. He knows how to approach a situation. He knows how to come in and, like, just, like, puff up someone's ego before he asks them a good question. So he kneels down, and he looks up, and he says, good teacher. But the, the way that Jesus treats this man throughout their entire conversation is as if this man had a serious, deep heart and soul question. Jesus didn't just go, you know what, you're flattering me, get away from me. He knew there was something deep in this man's heart, this young man's heart, that he really had these difficult questions. We're told that he was rich, here was a man who had it all. He acquired it all. All there was to acquire in his cult, by his cultural standards, he was wealthy. He was young. He was a ruler. The other gospel accounts tell us that he was a young ruler. He had obeyed all the commands of God to their fullest, the ones that Jesus mentions here. He has done everything that his society expected of him, everything his family expected of him, but he was still empty. He was still searching. He was still, he had this deep hunger still. So he goes to Jesus, who he, he knows, he suspects is another, he's a good teacher, he's a good man, and this, this young rich ruler thinks he's a good man as well. So he goes to, the, the way he approaches Jesus is like one good man to another. I'm good, you're good. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone, as if to say, do you really know who God is? See, because obeying the, old, the, the, the commandments of God, the, the, the whole reason why you would obey the commandments of God was to know God. If you've ever read Psalm 119 in the Old Testament, the whole book is about the commands of God and how they're a delight and how they lead to life and how when you follow them, they bring life into your life. And this man, having obeyed all of them, should have been so eager not only just to know Jesus and God, but to have eternal true life. Jesus also questions his definition of good. Do you really know what good is? See, what this, this man hoped to discover from another good man, Jesus, was what's good enough to inherit eternal life. 
So I'm good from one good man to another good man. How do I get in? And Jesus pushes this man back to God. He says his only hope was complete reliance and dependence upon God. And this is where Jesus takes him in the whole conversation. And the question was, what must I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Look at how he frames the question. What must I do? Okay, it's like this, this, this young man. He has pretty much everything. Okay, total adherence to the law, check. Wealth, check. Influence, check. Power, check. Youth, check. And then what, what thing that he need to complete his list, to complete his portfolio, to complete his resume? A little bit of eternal life. It's like if I just get a little bit, of, if I get some eternal life in that portfolio, I'll be looking good. I have wealth, I have power, I have influence, I have adherence to the law, I have it all. I need some eternal life. A lot of you in here are very successful at what you do. That's why you live in San Francisco and the Bay Area to do what you do because you're really good at doing what you do. Many of you have gone to good schools or in good schools currently. You have good careers and you have a great futures and the way that you've accomplished all of these things the way that you've set yourself up is by working very, very hard. It is not, a, not a, an unknown thing. I was talking to somebody in first service. It's not an unknown thing to put in a 12-hour, 14-hour workday. Working very hard to get what you really want. And how you've got, what you, what, how you've got success, especially in this city, is you've You've gone to great schools, you've worked really hard. What, what you've been given, you've searched, you've planned, you've executed, you've worked the 15-hour days, and you've strived. And somehow, and what we do is we take this sick tendency and do this exact same thing with our spiritual life. It's something that I acquire. How do I get one? Notice this guy, because this guy's rich, right? He's acquired so many things. So he goes to Jesus, he's like, okay, now I want to acquire eternal life. How do I get? How do I inherit eternal life? Right before this, Jesus was sitting on the ground in a house, and little kids were walking up to him, and the disciples were like, no, no, not you. You can't, well, this isn't children hour with Jesus, not now. And Jesus gets mad. He's like, no, let them come to me. He grabs them, he picks them up in his arms, and he says this. He says, let the children come to me, do not hinder them. For such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not inherit it. I mean, do you see the difference? One is trying to acquire the kingdom of God. One, of them, one person's like this, how do I get the kingdom of God? How do I grab onto it? How do I hold onto it? How do I inherit it? How do I acquire the kingdom of God? And the other child is receiving the kingdom of God. When's the last time you gave a kid a gift and they thought, or they said out loud, oh, I, I, I totally don't deserve this gift. What do I owe you for this gift? What, no, I have to pay this back. I can't, I can't accept this. I mean, when you give a kid like a, a lollipop or like a toy car or like a teddy bear or something like here or a video game or something, here you go. And they're like, oh, I can't afford this. <laughs> like, oh my gosh, how am I going to pay you back? Never. They're always like, uh, thank you. They receive it gladly. But you, when you and I get gifts, we're like, no, no. How do I pay you? I, I, I don't deserve that. 
how do I pay you for it? You can't just give that to me. I'm going to be in your debt, and I know what you're going to do. You're going to come back, and it's going to come back to bite me. No, you can't give me that. Jesus says you don't acquire the kingdom of God. You receive the kingdom of God like a child. This man was walking up going, how do I earn it? And the kids were pretty much saying, can I have a hug? That's the difference. This man walks up like, how do I get it? And the kids were walking up going, can I just hug Jesus? But notice Jesus goes there with him. This is really cool. He just goes there with him. He's like, all right, what must you do? Okay, you know the commandments. Do not murder, commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not fraud, do not honor your... Uh, or honor your father and mother. And as he's reading them, this, this rich young ruler is probably going, check, 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 keep it rolling, keep it rolling, check, got that, done all of those things. Jesus, I've done them all. Now, it almost sounds like a judgment day conversation. He wants in. How do I get in to eternal life? Jesus is like, okay, you have to do this, this, this. Okay, I've done all that. And you can't do these things. I haven't done any of those things. So he goes through them. Do you know the commandments? Do not murder, do not commit adultery. I did not grow up in a, uh, in, a, in a home where my family followed Jesus. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. And I didn't come to receive Christ until I was a uh, junior in high school. Had no concept, didn't read the Bible or anything. One day, someone came up to me and asked me this exact same question. They posed the question, do you think that you will inherit eternal life? And I've never read the Bible, and I'm like, okay, yeah, of course I will. And, okay, I've never read this. I went through the same exact list in my head. I went, I love my mom and dad, and they love me. Check. I haven't murdered anybody. Check. I haven't committed adultery. I'm not even married yet. Check. And I was like, I stole once, but my dad made me give it back because it doesn't really count. So I, like, have it all. I'm in. I am in. Done. I don't need your gospel thing or whatever you're giving me. I'm in already. See, all of these commandments that Jesus recalled are measurable, okay? You know when you've done them. You know when you're breaking them. You know when you murder someone. You know that. You know when you're having sex with someone who's not your spouse. You know when you're stealing. It's not like you're driving home in a car and in the middle of your way home, you're like, wait a second, I don't own a car. Like, whose car? I stole a car. That's a bummer, I, my bad, I didn't, I didn't know. Like, you know, you know, these things are measurable, okay? You know when you've done them. This man answers Jesus back. All of these things, all of these observable, measurable, discernible things I have done. He says, ever since I was a youth, ever since my bar mitzvah, I have done, ever since I became a son of the commandments of God at 13, I have kept them. Now, there is no reason not to believe him. You can't go, well, he obviously hasn't read the Sermon on the Mount, you can't do that because Jesus doesn't do that to him. He could be like the Apostle Paul who says, I have done all of these things, yet when it came to thou shalt not covet, I was cut to the heart. He could have observed all of these things. Look at what Jesus says to him. Verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Jesus looked at him, looked at him and loved him. He did not judge him. He as if he lies, like, oh my gosh, you're such a liar. You broke all of those commandments in your heart. He doesn't do that. He goes, Jesus loved him. And because Jesus loved him, he directly challenged him. 
I just want to say this really fast. If, if any time during this, um, this, this morning or this afternoon, any time at all, where you feel like there's, some, there's something pressing, like God is pressing on your heart something, or challenging something in your life, number one, do not squirm and run, and number two, please understand that it's out of love. Jesus, right before he challenges this man, it says, Jesus looking at him, that's a a piercing look like in his heart, looked at him and loved him. And because he loves him, he challenges him because he's not quite there yet. He's not ready to receive the kingdom of God. And Jesus says to him, you lack one thing. He doesn't say this as if to go, ha ha, I'm gonna catch in a lie. He does this out of love. Listen, I love you. There's one thing that's destroying you. Sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and then follow me. And it's not until right now that we find out he's filthy rich. Up until this point, if you're reading this narrative, you don't know how much money he has. You don't know why Jesus said that at all. Why would you just tell him to sell his stuff? Then it says, disheartened by the saying, He went away sorrowful, for he had great wealth. As far as this young man knew in his own heart, he had kept every single command of God. He did everything that he was supposed to do. He had set his life up in such a way as to please God. And ever since we've been here, when we started this church over a year ago, and I've I've talked to people, I've met so many people that grew up thinking, that if I do this, or this, or this, I'm in. If I believe this way, or if I do this, or I do not do this, then I'm in. This is exactly what this young man thought. I've done all of these things, I'm in. But Jesus said there's one thing that's missing. There's one thing that you lack. What is that one thing? And this one thing that lacked amounted to everything. And it was this, his life was still centered on himself. Listen, you guys could be the most obedient, successful, religious people in the world and your life is still centered around you. That's the deception of idolatry. You're like, well, I I made a promise to not have sex before I was married a long time ago and I've, um, I haven't, I, I've, I've kept that, so I'm in. Or I've, I have not done this, I have not murdered, I'm in. I still have, I do everything my parents want me to do, I'm in. And we do all these things going, if I do these things, then I'm in. I go to church every single Sunday and I give money, I must be in. And Jesus says, he puts his finger right on that thing and says, but this. You're still, your life is still centered around you. The truth about himself probably lay hidden for years. This, this truth that this young man had is probably, was probably laid in his heart so deep, so hidden for so many years. See, in contemporary Judaism at the time, there was this understanding that if you had wealth and power, you were being blessed by God. There's actually uh, a rabbinic saying that you couldn't give away more than 20% of all your wealth lest you be, someone has to take care of you. Like, if you had money, you were being blessed. So people around him thought he, that 
thought that he was being blessed. He thought that he was being blessed. He obeyed all the commandments, but this one sentence was his undoing. Jesus exposed this truth that lay deep in his heart. He had another God, commandment number one. He had another God. He had this idol in his life, which he prized more than the true and living God. And all of this was captured in this phrase, he had great wealth. So we see this question, but also we see the deception of money and idolatry. See, not many people, probably not anyone in here, would really admit they have a money problem. Like if we talked about who has, who has a problem with money, and you're like, my only problem with money is I don't have enough of it. That's my only problem with money. I wish I had a wealth problem. Then that would be a good problem to have. I would take that problem over my problem any day. The problem the Bible exposes about money is not that people have a lot of it. Like it's only when you, it becomes, you have a lot of money that does it start to do damage. The problem with money is our proclivity to depend on it. That's the problem that the Bible talks about money. It's our proclivity to depend on money. It's the false sense of security that money creates and the temptation to trust in material resources. This is why some of you feel vulnerable when your bank account dips below a certain level. Like when you get that alert from Bank of America or Chase or your mom, I don't know, someone. Like your bank account has gone below $25, you're like, you become vulnerable. You're like, oh my gosh, I'm, what's gonna happen to my life? Who's in control? Is God in control or not in control? Am I in control? I don't know. And you start to feel vulnerable. Or when you look at your bank account and you have a large sum of money, you feel invincible. Like, nothing can touch me. I can afford burritos for everyone. Um, I feel like on top of the world. It's just our hearts are so tied to it. And the reason why money and wealth is deceptive is that you never really know you're relying upon it. You never know that you're sinning with money. See, all, like I said, when you commit adultery, that's, that's, you, can, you know when you're committing adultery. You know when you're stealing. You know when you're murdering, but you don't know when you're being greedy. It's totally subjective. It's like, I'm not, I'm not greedy. I'm not the richest person that I know or the most materialistic person that I know. And I'm not the poorest person that I know either. I'm like right in the middle. And everyone can say that. And we feel justified on how we spend and save money. See, money will almost always show what you worship. Money will almost always show what you worship. It did with this rich young man when Jesus asked him, how do you, when he asked Jesus, how do you enter into eternal life? There's a great illustration that I heard about this that said the ease and joy of where you spend your money will show you what you value. The ease of which of where you spend your money, the ease of where you spend your money will show you your true value and what you worship. And so the example went like this. If you have a hard time giving money away, if you have a really, really difficult time giving money away to ministry or nonprofits or charity, if it's so difficult for you to give money away to fund ministry and nonprofits and charity, but it's easy, it's so easy for you to spend money on your clothes, Almost too easy. Almost like you need to stop yourself. And you get joy when you do it, and you get this little rush. Then your real treasure of your heart is your wardrobe. 
And the God you serve is personal, apparent, approval from others, acceptance, rather than finding all of that in Jesus. And I would not have thought of that up because that's too painful. I didn't make that one up. I'm like, that one's too painful to say that, even out loud. If you think about it, where you are excited to spend your money shows a lot about where your heart is. And it goes on, if you find it difficult to give away money, but you find it easy to put it into savings and investments, and when you get your statements, you get so excited and so easy to live a simple life because you know you're just saving and you're investing everything, then the real treasure of your heart is the bank and your God is false security that wealth brings. And it's how you find control in the midst of a chaotic world. See, we think money, when we think of money, we think of the money that we earn is our money. It's our possession. My wife and I, Ashley, when we first got married, we took this financial, biblical financial class together. And rule number one in class was this. Lesson number one, all money is God's money. It was almost like a little chant that we did. All money is God's money. It's all God's. If you, if you got money, if, it's, if you got money because of your hands, God gave you your hands. If you used your feet to make money, he's giving you your feet. If you lose, used your brain, he's giving you your brain. All of it's his. And God might give you money for some more, for some a lot less. But God doesn't give up ownership of it once he gives it to you because you're a steward of it. It's not like, oh, this is your money. Actually, no, it's still God's money, but you're a steward of it. And what God wants us to do is to bring about the peace of God and the reconciliation of God and the justice of God and the love of God through your wealth. Through what he has given you. Do you see that? You see what Jesus does here when he tells him to give up everything? He, he invites him to join the kingdom of God. See, the Hebraic understanding of the kingdom of God is not like once you die, you enter the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God breaks in. They were hoping that Messiah would come and break in, and Messiah is there. The kingdom of God is present, it's now. And this is why this guy says, give away everything and follow me and then join the kingdom of God by giving away all the things that you depend on and funding the poor. Be a part of that now. You and I have this tendency to trust in our wealth, whatever, however big or however small, to trust in our possessions, to place our hope in them, and the result is that our possessions possess us. We're like a bad episode of hoarders. The, the power that wealth and possessions have over us have with them this power to own us, and we become its tool and its slave. So Jesus here lovingly tells this man, lovingly tells this man, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and follow me. But this man can't. He has too much money. He has too much influence. He has too much wealth and has too much power over him. And what, what's tragically shown to us is how easy it is to become so attached to something that even an earnest man like this man forgets what's infinitely important to him. This happens to, in, in, with addictions. This happens with wealth and money. This happens with love interests. That we get so focused on that thing, what we love, that we forget what's really important to us. I've seen people get destroyed by wealth, by drugs, by someone they, lo someone they love, and they forget what's really important. They forget this man, like, forgot about God, eternal life. 
the kingdom of God breaking in, bringing about the peace of God, and it's deception. That's why wealth in Scripture is, it's not bad in and of itself. It's what it does to the human heart. Lastly, the truth about discipleship. There are no loopholes here. This is, Jesus says something very harsh. Um, It says here that, I love this this, uh, saying that Jesus, I think Jesus is very funny. And I thought I would have laughed if I was there at this saying. He says it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That's funny. It's a good mental picture, okay? And some people um, say, well, well, well the, you know, the, the eye of the needle was actually this gate in Jerusalem. And it's a small gate, and camels had to get on their knees and scooch through the gate. So in order for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven, all they had to do is bow low and scooch in. Number one, there's nothing Nothing that his, historically proves that or even supports that at all. And number two, I've never seen a camel scooch. <laughs> this doesn't make any sense. What Jesus is saying is this, is that the, the biggest animal in, in Jerusalem at that time or in Israel at that time was a camel. The smallest opening was the eye of a needle. He says it's impossible to get that animal into an eye of a needle. It's impossible. And it's impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples are like, wait a second. Because the first implication sounds like, well, it's impossible for anybody to enter the kingdom of God. That's why they say, well, then who can be saved? There was something about this saying that they all looked within them and were like, well, then who can be saved? Who can really give up everything and follow you? And then Jesus says, with God, this is possible. And then they realize, wait, we did it. Give up nets and a tax booth and family and life to follow you. See, a couple weeks ago, we talked about the way, that, the way that we follow Jesus is by taking up our cross, denying ourselves, and following him. And we talk about a cross, like death, and like to follow Jesus, there's a part of us that has to die, and we're all okay with that. We're like, okay, okay, I, I get that. But I say, hey, give up all your money and follow Jesus. Everybody's like, we time out. That's absurd. There's something, there's something about money that's tied in pretty much all of our hearts. But the deepest answer to verse 17 lies not in the command to sell everything, but in the command to follow Jesus. Because in order to follow Jesus, he had to give up his wealth because that was his God. That's what he was following. And the reason why Jesus calls him to leave all of that and to follow him is because of Jesus' worth. And what he fails to see is the absolute worth of Jesus. See, what we possess ends up possessing us. And they control us. And they end up destroying us. And Jesus is saying, you have to let this go or it's going to destroy you. And Jesus is the only one who can possess us, who can control us without destroying us. And so he puts his finger on this thing. See, every single person in here, sets their heart on something that says, if I have that, if I have this, then I have significance and I have security. If I just have this thing, and, I, and, I, and this is different for every person, some treasure, something that we set in front of us, like if I just had this, different for everyone, it could be wealth. If I just had wealth, if I just had a significant other to love, or it could be an ability or your creativity, it could be a career, it could be your... It could be your money. If I just have this, 
And whatever your heart determines what this is, you'll do anything and everything to get it, to keep it, to maintain it. You would die for it. You would walk away from opportunity to maintain it. You would pay any price for it. And why would Jesus live a perfect life and then die a thief's death on a cross willingly for us in our place? Why would he do that? Why would he give his life for us? Because we must have been his greatest treasure. And I know that sounds a bit cheesy, and that sounds a bit blasphemous, but when Jesus looked at this man, it says he loved him. He saw the thing that was keeping this man from following Jesus, and he goes, I loved you, and so I must tell you the truth. This is what's keeping you. He loves us. Jesus dies to purchase us. Second Corinthians, Paul writes, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. You're like, oh, wait a second, pastor, I just saw I can become rich, hello. I didn't, you didn't mention that in the little, little sermon there. What does that mean? What did Jesus say at the end of this pericope, at the end of this teaching? He says, truly, I say to you that no one who left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions in the age to come, eternal life. See, when you and I give these things up to follow Jesus, um, one commentator by the name of William Lane says that we're brought into a new community where all of that stuff is there. You're brought into a place where I didn't have you might say, I didn't have a mom. In the community of faith, you now have mom. I didn't have brothers and sisters. In the community of faith, you now have brothers and sisters. I didn't have a flat screen TV in the community of faith you do now, because I guarantee there's someone in here that does have one and should invite you over to watch the Super Bowl. This is what happens in the community. I don't have enough money. In the community of faith, you should be able to have your needs met because people give. Do you see what happens in the community? You're brought into a new family where all of this is there because it's not you hoarding it and trying to keeping it, but it's you giving it. If everyone was giving, you're brought in this sort of life. And how is this made possible? Because Christ is our model. Christ is our substitute. Christ is our goal. He gave everything up that we can be brought in. And so I will say this as we finish. It might not be money for you, and I understand that, but there's probably some sort of thing, an idol, a God, that you deem more important than anything else. And Jesus wants to put his finger on it, and I want to ask you not to run away, not to leave sorrowful, not to squirm, but allow Jesus to do that great work where he takes that, and you might say it's impossible to let this go, with God all things are possible. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that it's not by us doing and doing and doing 
that we're ever made right, it's by us receiving the kingdom of God. And I pray that our hearts today would receive your kingdom. And God, I, and, I, and I also pray that you would mobilize your church, this church, other churches in San Francisco and the Bay Area, release people and funds and, and, and wealth and release resources all to bring about your kingdom in this city. But I pray that that would all happen as we worship you. That would all happen as we look to you. And we look for you, to you for our hope, our reward, our prize. In Jesus' name, amen.